John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 837.EX0204, certificate number 42582, Elizabeth Nietzsche. Gesundheit. We're going to hear from Germans who are mad that we're not saying Nietzsche, like the ones they get mad at the Americanized Goethe. Nietzsche. You can't say, no American is going to take the time. We're we're a busy people. We've got a frontier to to populate. We're just going to say Nietzsche. Nietzsche. Although, you remember... For years, we said Nietzsche. Yeah, and it it, it led to the about? well. It led to the. Uh, do you know the Nietzsche Sartre formulation of philosophy? Go, well, Nietzsche is peachy, but Sartre is Sparta. I guess you have to say Sartre also for that to work. Sartre is Sparta. Is <laughs> smarter? <laughs> Jean Paul Sartre drives the Dodge Dart. So you're just saying people should be grateful. The future should be grateful that we're not saying Nietzsche. At we least. could be saying Nietzsche. So we're, that's the threat we're holding to your head, uh, annoyed Germans. Nietzsche we'll, loves a Nietzsche. We'll say Nietzsche. Don't. <laughs> Don't think we won't. They do say Nietzsche? Nietzsche. Nietzsche. And in fact, I, f- I found a thread online where a German was throwing up his hands at how simple it is. It's just like how it's, it is just like how it is spelled, Americans. Nietzsche. Nietzsche. <laughs> you see the Nietz? You see the Che? Nietzsche. He has a very difficult name to spell. When did you first come up against the name? Do you remember when you first learned that there was a person with that unlikely succession of consonants? Uh, Yeah, because I was, um, you know pseudo-intellectual in early, in early, well, I guess in late high school, early college, where I was talking about Nietzsche. Nietzsche to impress I was, girls? I was talking about Nietzsche a long time before I'd really read any of it or understood any of it. That's not uncommon, by the way, as we'll see for his oeuvre. Yeah. And, uh, and then I think it was, it was maybe the third time I returned to college when I was at that point in my mid-twenties that... Um, that I started to like be assigned those readings and and have that sort of Hegelian year. You never had the surface level <laughs> grappling with Nietzsche that can happen in uh, seventh grade when you read Jack London, or like tenth grade when you read. It was Herman Crime and Hess, Punishment. I think, or you know, oh, like yeah. like the the Siddhartha kind of era. I guess that raises the question of why high schools are assigning these kind of sinewy, awful Nietzschean protagonists to, to kids, like, is it because they think girls will be, will, will read anyway? Girls will read Anne of Green Gables, but you have to trick the boys by having them read about 
axe murderers and uh i mean it's better than ayn rand <laughs> but it's one step away <laughs> like know. nietzsche is exactly ayn rand in that um you know richard spencer the our beloved uh, dapper nazi when he was kind of getting lovingly profiled for some reason in the atlantic he was always telling people that i was red-pilled by nietzsche yeah so he's one of these people that had one semester and was like damn yeah no like i see the truth now thanks friedrich well there's that whole argument that philosophy like classical western enlightenment philosophy ended at nietzsche kind of it it all was a natural progression to nietzsche and then it all then or nietzsche and it all that then post nietzsche there was nothing or there was no more that's, need for that's not very flattering philosophy. to him he broke the whole endeavor it's like the <laughs> the guy at the airbnb who uh, you know <laughs> Dozens of people have stayed here, but then this guy broke the mirror and broke a leg on the armchair. It's a lot harder to to assign uh, to assign high school students to read Derrida, I think, or it's harder for the for the teachers to be able to explain what my, they've read. My guess is it's just the multiplicity of movements with a with a broader, more educated post industrial world. You get a hundred people doing a hundred things rather than a curated arc of one guy at right. a time. Right. I'm going to extend what I I'm I'm. Uh, I'm Plato. I'm going to extend what Socrates did. Well, I'm Aristotle. I'm going to extend what Plato did. You <laughs> that's know, exactly it. That's a lot easier for kids to put in an outline. Well, and it just seemed right. It was it was presented to us as just like an inevitable staircase <laughs> of like, like even before it happened, go. you could look ahead and be like, oh, I bet Kant is coming. <laughs> you really could, and that was the syllabus. I mean, it really was. It, the syllabus made it seem the illusion like, of inevitability. Yeah. Well, and and that each was building on the on his priors in a way that suggested a path to truth. Well, there is something a little apocalyptic about Nietzsche's work, right? And you can yeah. see, and you can see what fascists or even like uh, you know, dopey grifter fascists like Richard Spencer would see in it. You know, all mm. the stuff about um, the old world has ended, there you know, the west is in civilizational decay. Um you will yourself to power. Yeah. Well, yeah. We have to discover what the new thing is. I guess, you know, God is dead. Right. He's very quotable is the thing about Nietzsche. That's another reason why all these freshmen probably, uh, they're like, ooh, wow. The um, When you gaze into the abyss, the abyss gazes also. That that makes you think. Oh, you, I mean, the number of times you, that... Uh, <clears throat> you just want a t-shirt. I sat, on the, uh, sat outside on the steps of the dorm and just said that to everyone passing by. That's how I, you know... Oh, it was so popular. In Even college. the stuff that's not complete sentences is like smart sounding little sound bites. The eternal return, the Ubermensch. Right. Smart sounding, but also get, makes you feel like they're cliff notes to his actual work. So that if you, if you kind of string the quotes together, you feel like you're cap you can claim to be like a Nietzsche, right? You can claim to. Yeah, that, how, how are we going to say that word now that we can't say Nietzsche anymore? Nietzsche you can say Nietzschean, but I'm not going to say Nietzschean. <laughs> but like you cannot, you, there, Kant doesn't have those uh, those quotes. So in order to say you're a Kantian, you really have to be able to back that up with a couple of sentences. Hegel, Hegel is quotable. There that, are uh, there are more Hegelians than I than I would like, frankly. It, <laughs> in the colleges. In, in your friend circle? Yeah, there really are. I wish that I could have cha like chased a few out. A new broom sweeps clean. The uh, I mean, it's kind of a problem with Nietzsche is that he's so quotable that he's understood via aphorisms. Right. Because it's very easy to take these aphorisms out of context. Um, you know, whatever doesn't kill you, make you makes you stronger is, is great from a football coach or whatever. 
but that's not what he meant by it. The, in particular, the fascist uses of his, of his work, you know, the national socialists in Germany and the Italian fascists both loved Nietzsche. Um, I'm sure the Italians said it wrong because you can say civilization is in decay and then you can just say, <clears throat> because of Jews, you know, <laughs> right? or when he says, um, you know, Nietzsche was very, uh, pro, um, you know, what Christianity had done to the West, kind of the, the, the civilization it had built. And that's why he's concerned with God being dead. What, you know, what replaces it, but nihilism, how do we invent something new in, in the age where science and reason have, have, uh, made God seem unnecessary, you know, like evolutionary theory has explained life and cognitive theories explaining consciousness and cosmological theories explaining the universe and, you know, so what do you have now? What's your organizing structure? Because he was a big fan of, of the, the hundreds of years of progress that had been built by that. But he had no real time for any of the Christian pieties. Right. Nietzsche doesn't care if you're... I mean, and I think that, that resonates with the fascists. This idea that, well, we love the cathedrals, but <laughs> being nice to your neighbor, that's a little limp-wristed, Jesus. Well, and, and the... I mean, I think we are still in the late 20th century wrestling with... Um, and I feel like every every week on Twitter, I'm wrestling with some commenter who's asking what basis morality, right? Like what, if not God, if not... You have a better class of commenter than I do. Well, you have more, so it's harder to filter through. It's harder to find the, the Hegelians. <laughs> people, always want, people always want to hear, well, they don't want to hear what I think. They want, it, they want me to hear what they think, but... That's, but, that's what a commenter is. But that's someone but, who didn't like your comment enough to leave it alone. It's absolutely true that the that the um, that we're living in an era where we have demystified or deconstructed si- all the systems, all the systems of oppression, but haven't replaced all of them with new systems with non-oppressive like systems that fulfill those roles. And everybody's got a different version of them right now. Nietzsche did. He sure did. <laughs> well, I mean, Nietzsche's idea of the Ubermensch, which we now think of as kind of a a, a barrel-chested Bavarian or something. Right. It uh, says right. It's right there in the name. <laughs> <laughs> well, only because he was German. Ubermensch. If he was, if he was like a, a Chilean philosopher, yeah. it would be. Uh, How, what is it in Spanish? I, I don't know. Overman. Uh, hiper hiper hombre or yeah, something. See, that's a lot. He's that's, hyper that's, hyper hombre. That's a lot sexy. We love that guy. He seems like he's from the future. <laughs> But Ubermensch has been just corrupted by the umlaut. Yeah, like the, the second you see the first letter, you're like, uh-oh. Uh-oh, metal band. <laughs> this is trouble. <laughs> this can be misused. But he never said, like, what we need is a strong white member of the Volk who's... Right. who's... Or, let alone an army of them. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, he's just saying it's got to be something. Like, it's we need, we need a, a, a new future person or we're doomed to nihilism. And maybe... He, in hindsight, maybe he should have said, and it shouldn't be a genocidal uh, anti-Semitic ar- ar- army of Germans. <laughs> right. <laughs> because our idea of Nietzsche is, is uh, at best incomplete, and thanks to the National Socialists, very inaccurate. He, nothing frustrated him as he was writing in the late 19th century more than what he called race fraud. He hated the kind of anti-Semitic race baiting in Germany at the time and wrote about it vigorously. Uh, he was friends with Wagner, which is convenient if you're Hitler, but he broke with Wagner because he was tired of Wagner just muttering about the, writing about the, the Jewish menace all the time. Right. Um, to the degree that many movements have appropriated Nietzsche. It's not just Richard Spencer slavering over it as a, you know, freshman philosophy student. Like the, 
anarchists loved Nietzsche. Um, well, the Neil Zionists love Nietzsche, honestly. Like if you're if you want to be the the new man founding Israel, Nietzsche's your guy, right? Um, and that's kind of why it feels like he's the last step on the ladder. Because you, it's, it splinters into everyone who read him differently. It does, right? I mean, it splinters into uh, because because what you get after that is a bunch of <clears throat> nation states, right? Yeah. Politically, we're no longer talking about um, we're no longer talking about your your people, right? Like the French, you're talking about the nation of France. We're talking about the the um, it's it's. It's a turning point politically and ph- philosophically. Does that make it a difference? You think when it's a government and not a, not what a, a heritage? Well, uh, I mean, but the heritage is still is is still plays a big role in in nationalism, obviously, yeah. right? But it's um, but there's no longer that, like, I don't know the con- the contiguous arc of time. It's um, starting in. What nineteen hundred year or eighteen forty eight even? Yeah, you know, there's a there's a splintering of 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 old systems, and we're. I, I mean, I hesitate to say that we're still. Well, I guess I don't hesitate to say that. Yeah, we are. It's we're still just all those same marbles in a bag. And it probably would have happened before if you hadn't had the the uh, the hegemony of the Western Church, right? Of or of whichever uh, uh, whichever the latest Western Church was, yeah. Right. I mean, the Western Church started splintering five hundred years before. But it, you know, that, it did a pretty good job of of uh, you know holding Western thought contained to one system. Even if you had new ideas, you had to explain how they reconciled with uh, the Book of Ezekiel or whatever. Yeah, and I guess I guess there's everybody there's, had these common assumptions, which were you know I'm not saying they weren't oppressive to huge swaths of the earth. But everything was, like, a lot of the authority was based on continuity from an original source. Yeah. Right? The king could trace his lineage back, but the church could. The pope can, too. And the languages all could, and the ideas could. And and then you had, in in that aftermath of all those revolutions, now you had free-floating ideas that were, that the idea could govern uh, people across, across all those lines, and that it wasn't... Con- continuous or it wasn't contiguous it was new it was uh new novel that w- that those could be systems of government you know marx um f- it all goes back to marx every conversation you and i have goes back to marx <laughs> it's, usually, it's usually me pulling it back i mean nietzsche sees that as an opportunity i mean he, you know his work is complicated and his viewpoint changes over time he's got a live you know a restless intelligence he's tackling all these ideas over the his fairly brief writing career. Like but, he, he was only active for 20 years, right? I mean, more or less. Yeah. The last 10 years of his life um, in, uh, it, you know, interestingly talking about his German heritage, there was no Germany, but he was, he was of Prussian birth. Saxon. So he, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, easy to, you know, it's easy for somebody like that to be appropriated into the Volk in the 20th century by, by the Nazis. But in fact, he spent his whole life bragging about his heritage as uh, Polish nobility. Oh, which is interesting because he, in fact, had no heritage in Polish nobility. He just liked to say <laughs> he, just he did. It. Yeah, he he preferred, for whatever reason, not to be thought of as Prussian or or Saxonian. Huh. Saxon. Saxon. Also a great metal band. <laughs> uh, the um, his career ended in 
1889, when he was only um, only 55. 1889, he was in his 40s. You're right. He was born in 44. So he's in his mid-40s. He's roughly my age. Oh, wow. That's, oh, yeah. That's like, you know, when you're 33 and you outlive Jesus, that's one thing. But when you outlive Nietzsche, uh, he had a severe mental breakdown in at the beginning of January 1889 on the streets of Turin. And nobody, you know, he was taken in by the police for making a scene, and nobody really knows what happens. What happened in the in the most common version? Uh, he was at the other end of the Piazza Carlo Alberto, and he saw a horse being whipped by its its owner or rider, and that was the final straw. That pushed him over the edge. Which you know, you kind of like that imbalance in a in a radical thinker like him. The fact that something like that, he you know, in 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 the common account, he ran over to the horse and threw his body over it to protect it from the flogging. And then just collapsed. And that was it. He lived for another decade. But um Insensible. Yeah, yeah. He he immediately started writing these crazy letters where he talked about how uh, you know, he was the creator and the Pope should go to jail and you know, he loses his uh his identity and his faculties. And so how much both in his time and now do you d- does a does an end like that cause you to, ref- or cause his peers and cause us to reflect back on his writing and his insights, and and see them potentially as a, 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 a warning, early symptom? Well, no, but like a like coming from a place of where, wh- whatever that line is, whatever that William James line is, where inspiration trends to, tre- you know, kind of bleeds into um, divine inspiration and bleeds into mental illness does it discredit the work that's what you? i'm wondering or, or is it even it does better? It to me but does it does it did it to his peers i mean today we kind of have the opposite effect where people will listen to these unlistenable sid barrett songs just because of <laughs> just because it's fascinating that he went crazy you know right uh, it gives it some sense of drama or moral heft in the in the lyrics but all of you know a lot of the post 60s stuff it's all all of our our rock heroes who lost their minds we can kind of just point to LSD and say, oh, it was LSD, right? It, that caused a break. Um, it's much harder to... I guess I just assumed that all these geniuses, even at his era, were skating perilously close to the edge. And schizophrenia usually manifests itself a lot earlier than, yeah. than 44. So to this day, it's not well understood what was going on in his head. Was it, uh, you know, at the time people just said syphilis. Cause that's what you always said when somebody went crazy. Oh, syphilis Especially was the in- LSD of the, of the <laughs> 1860s. Yeah, man. Have you tried, have you tried listening to this song on syphilis? It's amazing. <laughs> it has some downsides that LSD did not. Um, but I think that was just what you would say when an intellectual went crazy. Right. You're like, yeah, this guy probably has slept through every prostitute in, in sure. uh, uh, Paris. or Now he's got spongiform encephalitis. Right. Um, but there's other theories. He might have had a meningeal tumor. There just wasn't the medicine at the time, to be sure. Today we could check. Does need to have a tumor? Was it mercury poisoning? Like all these things that were kind of pinpointed later. It could have been any of them. Was he eating lead, chips, paint chips? Was the horse covered in lead? Did right. he accidentally just hug a, a, a horse covered with mercury? Um, so for the rest of his life, he's taken care of by his mom, Francisca, uh, for several years. And then when she returns from overseas, his sister, Elizabeth Nietzsche. Oh, or, notorious or, Elizabeth Nietzsche. <laughs> you, but you say it with some kind of fascination, like you're also attracted to her. She's so notorious. So, so notorious that, you, that I can't not, um, be fascinated by her. 
she's um yeah she's kind of the villain of this piece but she's a fascinating character anyway so so Nietzsche leaves the story now in his sister's care uh, with a series of strokes leading to paralysis and finally a third stroke a decade later that kills him but that doesn't stop new work from coming out he's the Tupac of the 1890s because Elizabeth keeps keeps sending holograms of him to Coachella (laughs) (laughs) essentially repackaging work and it's like you say because he aphorizes so well she can produce all these selective works. You know, we think of the will to power as a classic Nietzschean formulation, but that's actually just the name of the book she she cobbled together out of his other writings while he's drooling in her in her uh, guest bedroom. Really? Yeah. That wasn't his thesis. Uh, I'm sure he used the words will to power, but it's it's kind of like the Ubermensch, where you can where all he says is we you know we need a decisive new man to do something new. And if you asked him, hey, would that thing be forming an army and and uh, <sighs> killing 12 million people, he would be like, no, that's not the new way. That's, that's violence. That's the lowest thing. You know, right. he, he literally wanted reinvention. Sure. Um, a decisive secular Messiah. Yeah. So I'm sure he meant something muscular and individualistic and forward thinking when he says the will to power, but I'm sure he does not mean we need one scrawny man in a mustache to pretend he's, he's, um, a, a muscular messianic figure, but also not someone, not a, um, not someone working only for his own, uh, for his own like self. Um, what, right. what am I looking for? What is the term? What for for self-aggrandizement? Yeah, or? right. He's not looking. He's because that's, that's what we mean by Nietzschean today. Is right. uh, you know when we think when we when English teachers bring him up when they're reading Dostoevsky or Jack London, what they mean is a man who answers to no one who cares little for the for the bourgeois uh, morality of his time. Right. Re- reality gonna... creating, but for himself, not for, right. but, right. and that's not what Nietzsche meant at all. No, I don't think so. But that is what his followers meant, specifically his post-World War II followers. I mean, uh, you know, Leopold and Loeb murdering people just to show that uh, the morality wasn't for them. They're drawing it from Nietzsche, but it's filtered through all the anti-Semitic uh, uh, readings of his work. And for that, we have Elizabeth Nietzsche to thank. Um, thank you, Elizabeth Nietzsche. Well, I don't think we should. Oh, oh, so we don't thank her. For that, we have Elizabeth Nietzsche to blame. Yes. Screw you, Damn Elizabeth you, Nietzsche. Damn you, Elizabeth Nietzsche. Verdammt Elizabeth Nietzsche. Nietzsche. She, unlike her brother, she was a rabid anti-Semite. We always say they're rabid, like they're... <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of how they are. We're going to caricature them the way they've been caricaturing their victims. Was she Why like not? Wagner's girlfriend or something? What's the? What, she really was like all the way in. Right. Uh, I don't know about her. Like Nietzsche, uh, Nietzsche before he uh, disavowed Wagner, was friendly with him, in particular uh, his wife Cosimo. I think he had a thing maybe for Wagner's wife. And the thing about Nietzsche is he's a, he was a would-be composer, and so he was always playing oh. Ricard and Cosimo his own compositions. And you know they're just like, nah, you're not actually winning any awards there. Nice try, Friedrich. <laughs> But uh, Elizabeth Nietzsche's husband was a guy named Bernard Furster, right? Uh, who was, um, you know, kind of a Jew hater almost before it was fashionable in Germany. It was always fashionable in Germany. I mean, there's always there's always going to be a, a current of it. But this is a guy who got fired from his from his school. He was a school teacher, and he got fired for for uh, ranting about the Jews too much. Oh, guess, they, yeah. they must have a certain amount you're allowed to That's rent right. against you, the Jews in, in 1880s <laughs> Germany. You know, Tuesdays and Thursdays, yes, but Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays for calisthenics, sir. Th- that was a time, I guess, when there was, uh, it was less fashionable because it was, this is what we love to say, fin de siècle on this show. 
Fin de siècle. Fin de siècle. Fin. 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 Uh, the uh, we like to say it just because we know we get made fun of for oh. our pronunciation. But it's a it was a you know it was a time when when um, new values were supposed to be ascendant, and maybe maybe the dirty old antisemitism of the early nineteenth century wasn't in wasn't in vogue. Yeah, it hadn't been rebranded as the future. I mean, once you say, "Hey, guess what, Germany? Things are bad now." But I see the path forward, and it's blaming the Jews. Then you can kind of paint it as. The next new thing, the Ubermensch. Mm-hmm. But it does seem a little old fashioned. And that's how Nietzsche saw it. He was always writing about it as, as just kind of a stupid superstition right. of the past. But his brother in law, Bernard, does not agree. And after losing his job as a school teacher in, in rural Saxony. Also, probably because of the Jews. <laughs> right. <laughs> we say he lost his job, but, you know, who knows who pulled some strings? Um, he, uh, he started to organize his own little cult of believers in genetic purity. Right. And he finds 14 families to go in with him on a pretty harebrained scheme, which is to uh, settle uh, a remote part of the Paraguayan rainforest and create a new utopia for the purification and rebirth of the human race and the preservation of human culture. And what that means is without Jews. Without Jews. Let me ask you, is this the dawn of, like, Nazis in uh, in uh, Central South America? Is this the first iteration of that, or has there w- were there German colonies already in Paraguay? Was he following some earlier pioneer? Why Paraguay? I understand after the war that— but, uh, that Paraguay would be a nice place to hide. But it goes the other way around. It's a nice place to hide because there's already a sizable German minority there. I right. mean, you know, for much of the 20th century, the, you know, Paraguay was ruled by a dictator named Stressner, uh, you know, for a, a, a part German. You know, you just get a, t- a tiny number of Germans in your in your gene pool, and one of them is going to be Generalissimo <laughs> in, in like a week and a half. <laughs> That's just how they do. So Ken, we're getting uh, we're getting close to the holidays here coming up, and it's time to uh, encourage people to get some omnibus merchandise. We've been remiss in providing Futurelings with the opportunity to have new, fresh merchandise to advertise their favorite podcast. If you are a bipedal omnibus Futureling with uh, one head and two arms, you don't have to be bipedal. You could have seven legs, but two oh, that's arms. True and a head, or rather, three appendages of any kind that you want to clothe. You need bilateral symmetry, or you're going to have a bad time. You could buy, if you had- if Hold you had, a mirror up to the side of your, to the center of your face right now, center line of your face, and if it looks more or less like you, you are eligible for this shirt. If you had six appendages that were w- waving wildly, two of them larger than the other four, you could buy two omnibus t-shirts- and cover the joints, co- cover the uh, the connecting areas between your different tentacles. Unless you live in a society or where knobs, where non nudity is taboo. Oh, sure. And then also you can only wear your omnibus t-shirts at home in your the privacy of your own r- reef or shell. Uh, thanks to our friends at Mediocrity, we have uh, two. We've returned the two. T-shirts that we had a couple of years ago, Omnibus and Futurelings, are for sale through October. And then going forward, two new designs every month with, um, with we promise, 
more stuff coming soon. We want, uh, what do we want? Mugs and stickers and yep. face masks. Bound Some- transcripts of all of our episodes bound in, in corduroy mm-hmm. with gilt labels. Somebody requested a onesie, which would require oh. us to have sexually active listeners who are reproducing. I believe that. Or, or adopting. Or adopting. Yeah. Well, there's other ways to reproduce. You don't think adoption counts as reproduction? Um, I, I'm not qualified to answer that. You could definitely drop the sexually active part. I'm with you there. Right. Uh, and so, and the place to the one location to keep an eye out for all of this is on the web at omnibusproject.com/store. Yeah, omnibusproject.com/store. That's great. We're like a real podcast now, and everything. And we're going to fill that store up with merchandise. We're going to have no name brand uh, omnibus merchant merchandise that just says. Generic canned tomatoes with yeah. the omnibus logo on podcast. it. Podcast. Oh, that's actually a pretty good idea. Yeah, podcast. podcast. Oh, wait a minute. A yellow shirt that just says podcast? In the omnibus font, maybe. Come on. That All should right. be up there soon. So check out omnibusproject.com slash store for these and other brainstorms. So starting around 1885, uh, Germans and other Europeans just poured into South America. And, and was it part of the sort of German problem of not having a colonial empire to to expand into, and so they were trying to do it ad hoc? Yeah, I think there's always going to be people looking for a fresh start, and yeah, they didn't have a uh, uh, an India or a Congo or a Congo to send uh, people to to where, who just decided they wanted to start a plantation or whatever, right? Um, Forty acres and a wildebeest. And so, uh, you know, just millions of Germans poured into uh, uh, something like three million Europeans poured into Argentina um, between 1885 and World War One, and uh, a big influx made its way into Paraguay. But uh, I think the Firsters colony, which they called Nueva Germania, New Germany, mm-hmm. um, was. The first are among the first. Like they were among the earliest adopters of this idea that, hey, for a fresh start in the kind of a troubled economy, we're going to avoid all these problems by going to Paraguay. Nothing says to me German culture like like, like the sort of the jungles of Paraguay. The, the jungles of Paraguay. Just like redolent with the smell of pretzels and mustard. But let me ask you this, John. In the Paraguayan jungle, you're yeah. wandering through the Paraguayan jungle. For a couple of days. How many Jewish people do you usually see? Oh, interesting. Well, you know, there is a giant, uh, like, Hasidic population in in uh, Buenos Aires. I was... But uh, I think that's a result of, of uh, European, Central European uh, Right, they weren't there already. Right. Yeah. These guys were going to keep a step ahead of the synagogues <laughs> by just jumping straight into the jungle. You see a anaconda, you can tell it's not circumcised. There it is. You're good. There it is. The the Uber Uber snake. And this is how they, this is how he sells it to these kind of these, this coterie of rural families that starts to that starts to gather around his hearth while he he tells them about how South America can be the you know this this spot in Paraguay he's found can be the new Naumburg on the Aguaria Umi. Now think about the appeal. You're there in Germany. Like this was the appeal that this was the appeal made to Germans for for. I guess about a hundred years. There's not enough room in Germany. Got to have some elbow room. We keep this round. We can't do what we want to do here in Germany. Which I mean, I've been all over Germany. There's still plenty of room there. I mean, you could. It's not like you can go just stick your put a stake in the ground and call it yours. But I mean, you'd have to buy it from somebody. 
but but it's not like they're wandering through. No, it's a favelas, <laughs> right? <laughs> no, it's like it's there's a lot of room in Germany, and it's, it's a beautiful country. It's true that every time I've been to Germany, I've never thought I got to get out of here. When's the next flight to Paraguay? Right. I mean, how? What are you trying to do? And I guess what it is is you're trying to create not just get away from Jews. It's not just driven by xenophobia, but you have to have a like a. Um, you have to have a, an animating idea that you're going to start a perfect new culture, right? That's not you can't do that just down the road from your old farm, right? You you have you have to you have to believe that that there that a perfect government is possible that that a utopian harmony is uh, is a thing that that you could build if you just didn't have all the tarnish of past systems bleeding through and. So you'd need to get as far away. You need to get into the jungles of Paraguay to put your stake in the ground. And whatever your contemptible values are, you also need to at least believe that if you get all like people, for instance, together, yeah. then maybe, what are you trying to get rid of? Strife. You're trying to get rid of, a lot of, a lot of the time you're just trying to get rid of marriage vows, but you're trying to get, <laughs> you know, you're trying to get. If, trying it were, to, if it were just me and my buddies, it's some classic middle-aged guy thing, right? right? Man, life's so complicated now. If it was just me and my buddies, like in the old days. Me and my buddies and our hot wives and, <laughs> and their hot daughters, and we could just go out and just build a new temple. Uh, and land is cheaper, I guess. Right. Like that's gotta be one thing. I'm sure this guy got a deal in middle of nowhere, Paraguay. Bet nobody was guarding it. I bet it was just a thing where he, he built a fence around it and called it his. Called it Nueva Germania. Um, and he, this is how he entices these 14 families uh, to his, to his vision. He, he seduces them with this idea that it'll be a land of milk and honey. You know, it'll, it'll be a life of ease. You'll have all these kind of, uh, you know, native, uh, servants just bringing right. you your every whim and uh, tropical fruits straight from the trees while you enjoy, um, you know, ease and pleasure. 112% humidity. Fred <laughs> <laughs> didn't lead with the weather. Mosquitoes the size of birds. Well, that's what happened. Like he did not really, uh, give them a realistic idea of some of the hardships of crossing the earth to live in middle of nowhere, Paraguay. Because that plantation fantasy always a plantation fantasy requires that you have a plantation, right? That you'd be growing crops and making money and exploiting the exploiting the local labor labor to create. But it's a farm economy. It's not just go out to the jungle and sit and read books. No, somebody's going to have to be planting and harvesting corn and and various starchy South American tubers, right? And not just for a subsistence life, but to sell on the market. You can't keep yourself in white linen suits just just growing enough tubers to eat. And this is what all the um, the white millennials are forgetting who are planning oh, their plantation boy. weddings. We're going to get letters. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think the plantation wedding has finally been killed off. Oh, by, are, is the plantation wedding over? I think. I don't know. Maybe there's certain segments of wealthy suburban Atlanta and Savannah that are I'm sure still true. eagerly planning their post-pandemic plantation weddings. But if you're listening to the show, please don't. I, I uh, Last year I went, uh, late at night and was walking around the campus of the University of Alabama. And, uh, you know, it's lovely. And sorority row in the, you know, like with all the lights on in the middle of the middle of the night, mm -hmm. it really was like very evocative. And then I went the next day and realized like, oh, wow, it's all still here. It hasn't, none of it's changed. It's <laughs> all just, there's a thin veneer, but it's all still alive. Um, the, uh, so the colonists realized very soon that 
Bernard Furster and Elizabeth Nietzsche Furster's promises are overblown. Like on the on the voyage alone, suddenly they've got rotting food and cockroaches. Um, it's not you know they realize very quickly that reality is not going to match his his golden dream. To, yeah, and they're not even off the boat. They're they're still in the you know yeah. To, nowadays, if you wanted. Goal, uh, rotten food and cockroaches on the way to South America. You'd have to take a carnival cruise, but uh, but this is, this is a new experience for these guys who have never left their little rural Saxon villages. They arrive in Montevideo, and then they realize it's a long ride up the Paraná River to uh, to get even close to the the site of of Furster's new utopia, and that's when the mosquitoes start. Sure. Oh, they could they could have told by the jellyfish on the beaches. They they knew when the when the when Wait, the ships landed. Jellyfish predict mosquitoes. Uh, if you it, well, it's it's the old adage, right? Uh, yeah, it's jellyfish, jellyfish at by night. night. <laughs> <laughs> mosquitoes delight. <laughs> uh, there's like sand fleas burrowing under their skin, laying uh, eggs. Ugh. So it's just like you know they had not considered the new flora and fauna. Um, you know, despite all, and they arrive there, and what what turns out is that it's like eleven hours on horseback to the nearest outpost. Right. And that makes it very hard to trade your corn and, and cassava and manioc or, or whatever it is they're growing. Um, so even though in the, you know, in the first two years of the colony, he does attract 40 families. Is that right? Presumably by lying about how, how nice it is. Um, a quarter of them leave after their first season because I, they see it's awful. I guess the successful colonies always start with people who are so desperate to start over, that they're willing to spend 10 years hacking and burning forest and living on... That's why there's still people in Australia. Roots and berries, it's, right? It's that better than a jail cell. You can't go with you can't go with go without enough desperation. You can't just think you're going to show up somewhere. And, and these people maybe were not quite desperate enough. Yeah. They had nice farms back in Saxony, and they were just told, Urgh, the Jews, it's going to be good, you know? Right. And then they got there, and they were like, you know, there actually weren't any Jews in my village. Yeah, uh, and the farms were all... <laughs> yeah, the farms produced food. I'm like... <laughs> I'm like this place. Actually, there was a Jew in my village. I liked him a lot. I don't remember <laughs> nice. what the problem was. He was always reading. <laughs> what a fun guy. Anywho, back to the uh, back to the slave whipping. Um, the, it turned out that uh, for the firsters had sunk a lot of money into this, so they needed like a hundred families to, to buy in just to stay afloat. So how did firster? Where, where did the money come from in the in the first place? I assume this, it's all these people pooling their same, you know, like like any good cult leader. Right. The first thing you got to do. It's a pyramid scheme. The first thing you got to do is to tell all the original founders they're in on the ground floor and it's time to to donate what's under their floorboards um, or under their mattress. But, you know, after a year or two, it becomes very clear that nobody's getting their money back because they, you know, they it's just, they can't get the goods out. Right. The farming's bad. You know, the firsters are all, you know, they're going to be vegetarians on their utopia, but soon they're all killing their animals for meat that they didn't want to have to eat. But, you know, that's starvation. Furster himself sinks into debt, and then he sinks into depression and alcoholism. Uh, and, uh, what, just two or three years after starting Nueva Harmonia, he is dead of a morphine and strychnine overdose. Well, overdose. It's, it's suicide if you take strychnine. If yeah. It could be a morphine overdose, but it's probably a morphine and strychnine Suicide, unless a little bit of strychnine is a just really takes the edge off the morphine. I no, don't know. a little bit of strychnine does not take the edge off of anything. It's terrible. <laughs> but uh, but uh, but I could imagine that strychnine could get put into your morphine. 
Oh, you think it's a murder? Well, that's the thing. If you're taking morphine and just like, yeah. Now, you're not saying the long arm of international Jewry reached across the Atlantic and found him. Oh, I don't know. I'm not saying it it, didn't. It's not. I mean, (laughs) it wouldn't be the last time that that, uh, Mossad... Found a, found a, a culpable criminal in Central or I South I guess it's America. funny that it ends up kind of being financial mismanagement that kills this place because, you know, I'm sure his people were proudly turning their backs on those evil intellectuals. Yeah. But it turns out maybe what you want is a couple nice guys with glasses and hats to look after the books. Maybe they could have brought along a couple Jewish accountants. On the one hand, you, you don't want to um, – you don't want this to have succeeded – because it's terrible. But the problem is that rather than go to South America and start a new colony of Germans who want to be rid of the the corrupting influence of Central Europe. That's a nice way to say it. Um, that instead, they, the people that had that impulse just decided to make that in Germany. Um, and you don't want... You, oh, you I see. You don't want there if all to the, have, if all the Nazis <laughs> had just gone to Paraguay. It, yeah, uh, we we broke some windows in a couple bars, but you know what? Berlin's too small for this, and there's all these gay people uh, in Weimar Berlin. Yeah, let's, let's just do this in in. Uh, let's go to Paraguay and just make a make our whole new new cities of of uh, glass there. But you don't want to wish the Nazis on South America. What do they do to deserve it? Well, that's the thing. You don't. But you don't want but, them anywhere. Send but, them to, send them to the moon. I wish that I Nazis mean, this on is, the moon. This is this is the old. If you could go back in time, would you fund? Uh, would you fund like n- like a Nazi country in? in a undiscovered uh, sand flea ridden part of, cent- of South America. Why do I keep saying Central America? South America. Just to avoid World War II, you mean. You you still get you still get a uh, an, a cruel national socialist movement but I but mean they're, they're still going to put Indians in camps, John. It's not going to be good. Yeah, I I would I guess I would have to look at the statistics to see how many people were living in that part of Paraguay. My sense is not very many. I see. So you can keep the numbers down. Keep the numbers down. That's right. You're you're part of you're now part of some pan-dimensional time travel commission that can slightly nudge history. Only twelve thousand people were put into slavery. We tried the Nazi genocide eighty thousand ways, and <laughs> it had you, to happen somewhere. If you put them in a very sparse part of the Atacamas, right. they can only get like six people in their camps. Northern Greenland. <laughs> um, but you don't want them to get to space because then they, you, you give them rocketry. Never let Nazis get to space. Don't. That's been a that's been a first principle for the last eighty years. And they were really close. All the guys that got us into space in the last century were Nazis. They were all Nazis. They were they, they were, were headed to space. Imagine if not. Imagine what we would be like now if if Nazis, if space was for Nazis. Well, like we were, the United States was still grooving down here, but space was full of Nazis. Well, my life would not be that different. Are you sure? Well, what are you, are you, are they dropping stuff on me? Well, everything we are say Are they dropping and do, copies of Mein Kampf from orbit? It's all coming down from space. What if, what if our TV signals went up and then the Nazis got their fingers on them before it came back down? Ted Turner tries satellite TV and it lasts for like six months before the Nazis shoot it down. And then he's like, well, sorry, it's going to be broadcast TV. It's going to be syndicated hee-haw well into the 21st century. What we've discovered, of course, is that cell phone signals do not actually go up to space and come back down. They... They wend their way around the world on undersea cables. So that'd be fine. The Nazis yeah. wouldn't be, um, uh, you know, losing our calls. I guess. I guess I'm, I'm going to go back to to my original platform of no Nazis. You weakened it for a second. Yeah. You were like some like, Nazis, but possibly in uh, what if remote we, deserts. Yeah. What if we put them somewhere like 
I don't know, camps. <laughs> no, wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. That's not. You've become no. everything you hate. Oh, damn it. Uh, after her husband's suicide, uh, Elizabeth Nietzsche returns to Germany in 1893, and as we've said, she takes over the full-time care of her brother, and she takes over his literary legacy. Her first book is a is a book about the glory is in 1893, um, <clears throat> and it's about the glorious successes of Nueva Hermania. Uh huh. So you can tell she's not too beholden to the truth, right? Um, and then she starts very selectively cutting her brother's writing unpublished writings and a lot of his earlier aphorisms uh, in collections like will to power and this is really how nietzsche gets reinvented as kind of a a prophet of the movement that would become nazism you know of, of the kind of the the roiling undercurrent in germany you know right before and after world war one because elizabeth despite all the the sand fleas still breeding her under her skin or perhaps because of them yes. lives to be a spry 89 or 90 years old she lives well into the 1930s well she was feted by the proto national socialists and then the national socialists themselves she was feted by hitler personally huh. uh you know hitler probably never read any more nietzsche than richard spencer did and possibly less yeah hard uh, to know what what hitler read not a brainy guy yeah um but he, uh, you know, when he realized that Nietzsche's work as, as reframed by He read Elizabeth, the aphorisms, just like every yeah, college student. You know, as Elizabeth Nietzsche reframes his writing selectively to support kind of a pro-nationalist, uh, anti-Semitic vibe, Hitler thinks, well, I can use this. And so Hitler um, meets with Elizabeth Nietzsche, you know, kisses her hand, is photographed, kind of staring pensively at, at a bust of Nietzsche's tomb. You know, he, he trots her out as kind of, uh, you know, the way political conventions now do where, look, it's, uh, you know, even though it's 1970, Herbert Hoover's widow, for some reason, is at the Republican National Convention. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Where she's some kind of uh, a, a grand a symbol of of, of the prof- prof- proud German heritage. Yeah. Right. Um, and yeah, the the widow, essentially. Sure. Uh, a connection to the to the, the old masters. Right. Um and when she died in 1935, Hitler, in fact, attended her funeral. And over the last, uh, you know, so that's 30 or 40 years in which Nietzsche has no control over his legacy because he's either insensible, paralyzed, or dead. Uh, and she can say, oh, yeah, when he said Ubermensch, he, he meant, uh, you know, blonde, uh, crew-cut weirdos. Is there, in Nietzsche scholarship, is there a a sense that his actual writing uh, has been preserved and is interpretable outside of her influence? Or was she, was she burning his papers and cutting and pasting stuff in such a way that, that it's impossible to know his legacy? No, there are plenty of Nietzscheans. Nietzscheans. It's two kind of schwas in a row. Who are kind of reclaiming his legacy from the, pop culture Wagnerian version of him as a, as a prophet of, uh, of the third Reich and a thousand year reign of antisemitism. But I mean, um, in his actual papers, like, uh, yeah, his, you know, decades of his work survives yeah. and that's where you can look and say, Hey, look, he's actually against race baiting. Uh, he's, uh, he speaks approvingly of, uh, of the Jews. Um, he's, he's, he's really against nationalism and violence. So I got some bad news for right. you, Hitler. Um, there is some controversy, I mean, recently, very recently, as recently as the maybe 1990s or early 2000s, there's been new work on Elizabeth's repackaged 
uh, Nietzsche. And, you know, they find that, you know, when she printed his letters, you know, she printed a collection of like 505 of his letters. And it turned out that only 60 of them are verbatim because she's gone through the rest of them with a fine tooth comb, getting oh, rid of really? things that are unflattering to her or to her vision of, of his work. And in fact, 32 of the letters are invented from the whole cloth. Wow. So she can just write, hey, uh, Elizabeth, how's it going? Uh, I'm still hating the Jews today and thinking about how the Aryan is the Ubermensch. Um, hope you're well. Love, Friedrich. Um, so she can make him say whatever whatever uh, she wants. There, There is some movement among Nietzsche scholars today to say that Elizabeth is blamed too much, that she has become, in fact— uh, a scapegoat for a scapegoat and, and possibly a misogynistic scapegoat like this woman you know getting in the way of his legacy because some of of her claims about him are true or because uh because some of the stuff that is would be neutral about her work yeah that hitler could have reframed his work anyway right. that it's very easy you know because his work does have a lot of this you know all this muscular muscular prose and beautiful poetry about the strong individual who must leave all the old strictures behind and invent a new, uh, uh, more permanent system that doesn't have all the depraved bourgeois nihilism. You know, it's easy to take all this stuff and say, you know, even if you're Richard Spencer and you're, and you don't know about the history, it'd be easy to read this and be like, yeah. And it's the same reason seventh graders love Holden Caulfield. Like everybody's all teenage boys are kind of borderline sociopaths for a few years. It's why my, uh, it's why my, Compound in Big Sur, uh, based on the writings of er- Ernest Hemingway, failed. There is still, uh, speaking of compounds, speaking yeah. of failed compounds, yeah. you can still visit Nueva Germania today. Uh, is there, uh, d- are there Germans there? There are. There is a, a mix of, uh, there, there's a, a people, a, a, a village of 500 houses living in really abject poverty. Like 16 of the houses have electricity. Even the, uh, there's a, a kind of a Nietzsche museum there that does not have electricity and you're going to have to find the old guy to let you in with his key. Um, but it's a mix of uh, German and Paraguayan people. Most of the surnames are German, but they mostly speak a mix of Spanish and, and Guarani, the, the local Indian language at home. Uh, it's, I guess it's an interesting visit because well, it's still in the middle of nowhere, but there is, as of maybe the early 2000s, there's finally a paved road from Asuncion. Huh. So you're not coming in on, on Jeeps or mules it's or whatever. It's not an 11-hour uh, mule ride anymore. Yeah. Elizabeth, the Bernard Furster was just 100 years early. Uh, t- today it's, But apparently today it is still not a very viable concern. There are these kind of mock medieval towers as you enter uh-huh. the village that kind of have a, a Teutonic... Approach, and I think there's kind of a, a an arched metalwork thing that says Nueva Hermania in a way that is unfortunately reminiscent of you know other oh, German there. building at that time, including the gates of concentration camps, maybe. Right. Um, but it just says Nueva Hermania instead of some slogan about hard work. Um, so there's still a lot of poverty there. There's a lot of inbreeding there because of the very small population. So to this day, you can see a high degree of um, ailments and weird malfor- physical malformations among the people. Um, today they largely grow yerba mate. Oh, that's, yeah. that's the right crop there. You know, the caffeinated leaves that they used to make that weird tea-like thing that, that, um, South Americans love to drink out of a silver straw, but I don't know. Are we just too dumb to have discovered it yet? How come we're not all drinking mate if it's so no, good? No, I feel like, I feel like uh, there are places in Seattle that you could go get yerba mate. There's probably Starbucks in Seattle right now that are selling more mate than latte. I- more mate than latte. That's that's the slogan. <laughs> that's the new Uberman. There is a street in Nueva Germania today named for Elizabeth Nietzsche. So that's kind of her last legacy, even though she's a 
a scholarly and academic villain now. There is still a street in this tiny Portuguese village. But um, <laughs> due to the faulty sign work, the sign says Elizabeth Nigts Chen. Nigs Chen. So they made her possibly Chinese. Are you sure that that's not how it's originally pronounced? Maybe we've been saying it wrong all the time. So everybody who is about to email us angry about how we've been saying it, please switch to Nigchen. And that concludes Elizabeth Nigchen. Entry (laughs) 837.EX0204. Certificate number 42582 in the omnibus. Futurelings... In the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are archived at at Omnibus Project. If you would like to share your theories and debate the nature of man with me, I'm at John Roderick. If you would like to join John's new utopia in Big Sur or elsewhere. If you just want to retell Ken's jokes to him and uh, and make uh, like unfunny unfunny uh, Jeopardy jokes he is at Ken Jennings I'm also on Instagram at John Roderick you can email us both at uh, theomnibusproject at gmail.com and Ken might share those emails with me if you mention me specifically if you're one in the one in ten that mentions John I just Uh, got a mean one that mentions you do you want it uh, does it, is it mean about me or is it mean about you? It's mean about us, but there's a paragraph at the end about you. That's, that's mean or a paragraph about me at the end that kind of, that saves the whole email. Uh, I didn't read it. It was like, and, and to John, I was like boring. <laughs> Why were they being mean to us? Was it somebody that thought they were a fan, but it was somebody, doesn't know the way to be a fan? It was an extremely lengthy email from someone who said the show would be, was really good, but it's getting political. Like why would you why you would why I, would you ruin a show about George Washington's teeth by mentioning his slaves that kind of thing? Yeah, you and I have been getting more political over time. Not have we? Be, well, we were you and I were always political, but we've been letting it get into the show more because in the early days we were choosing topics that were I don't know, just sort of like they were fun. Encyclopedia <laughs> Britannica for kids. There's an emu war. You'll like it. Yeah, and then as time went on, boy, we just couldn't keep it out. We just couldn't keep our liberal bias out of the show, but I, I, I read a lot of letters from our conservative listeners who say, John and Ken's liberal bias does not put me off of the program because they're so cute and their dumb liberal ideas are so easily batted away. At least they have a sense of humor. <laughs> like, often these come from the conservatives who are convinced that they are the... That you know the left is the joke killers, right? And so they're the, often the ones that are like, "Hey, you guys are you guys are funny instead of smug." I'm okay with it. Well, I'm sorry if uh, our political talk. Uh, I'm sorry, not sorry if our political talk has made you feel like the show is no longer enjoyable. But that is actually just your terrible privilege speaking, and you really need to work on that. Right on. Well, that that should put the smug uh, <laughs> references to bed. <laughs> If you if you if you were a, a good-hearted person, you would love everything about my podcast. Clearly, what have you got over there? You you showed up today with a, a very large flat box, and you've just now unwrapped it. This but. is something someone sent us back in August, but it was so huge I kept forgetting to bring it because it wasn't the size of normal mail. In August? Oh oh oh! I thought you were saying August two thousand nineteen. I see. I see. August. No, just a month ago. Uh, yes. Uh, well, as we record this, a month ago. Um. 
I wrote you two via email a month or so back about a sword I was looking to disown. Wait, I said that I when you showed up, I was like, oh, it looks like they gave us a sword. It really is a sword. I thought it was going to be like lawn furniture. Oh, I remember this email. After some, the box says it's um, fragile, but also cursed. Yeah, there's something about this sword that is, that this sword has a dark provenance. Nicola, Nicholas says, I trust you will care for it, John, and make it at home among your other food for thought objects. Ken, I'm sorry there's nothing in this parcel for you. This letter sucks. Uh, oh, well, let me see it. Oh, maybe maybe we shouldn't talk about it on the show because it, it... Because it's cursed? Well, I don't know. It's wrapped in a thing. I feel like you, the owner, should be the one to take it out of its... It's, well, um... It. Yeah, well, the, the letter, the letter um, that I, we originally received said, This sword is problematic... Oh, it is? And I... Is it made of George Washington's teeth or something? And I'm either going to... What was it? The, the, the options were destroy it in a fire, except I don't want to pollute the fire with it, or I don't know, you know, buried One, one of our ground. Zoroastrian uh, followers? <laughs> so so I said, well, you know, I I do have an, uh, a, an eclectic collection of... Not, I don't know if I would call it a problematic collection. It's not like I have... Uh, the the Nazi sabers. Yeah, I don't. I don't have any any plateware from Berchtesgarten or anything. But but you know, I've I have I have books that on my shelves that probably. I bet you have fewer weird Nazi books than most of the freshman Republican House class. <laughs> You're one hundred percent true. Well, and and you know, I I don't know. I mean, you have a giant Esperanto poster on your wall. The terrifying. Uh, Terrifying, terrifies everyone peeing in my guest room. <laughs> terrifying globalist Esperanto. Uh, I can't unwrap this. I have the, a Swiss Army knife. The tape is cursed. Oh, thank you. Yeah, maybe the sword is fine, but the tape is cursed. Seek the sword that was broken. In Imladris it dwells. I hope it didn't. I hope the U- U.S. Postal Service didn't do anything. The U.S. Postal you can Service is amazing. I support them, even if they do break my. They pen. got us a sword that was cursed, and they did it in just a matter of a of a few weeks. Well, the the problem, the problem with things like this is that, and I think this is this is true of a lot of people with a collector's mentality. You know, I, I, we've talked about it on the show before. Like, here I'll open another piece of mail in the meantime. What do you do with a thing? Oh, this was Nadine that said she was going to send us masks. Oh yeah. She thought the masks we were uh, we had recently been sent were a little baggy, and she wants us to have options in case our faces get smaller. And so she sent us masks from Unbelt. I guess it's true they are not belts. They are masks. <laughs> I uh, I have modified our earlier masks to fit me better with a little, um, I put a little stitch. Oh, you actually, you didn't just tighten the str- straps? You actually, you didn't no, they, tie this, you actually tightened it? It needed a, it needed a little stitch to, to fit seamlessly. And having put that stitch in there, they're great. These are nice. A mustard... Salmon and uh, slate blue. What, what are, these the, are these? The, are they scratch and sniff? I don't want <laughs> mustard or salmon in my mustard. Mask. <laughs> uh, these are not colors of masks uh, we have. These are lovely, Nadine. Oh, those are pretty. Thank you for Ooh, sending these un- unbelts, unmasks. The the uh, the salmon colored one is. Thank you, Nadine. We'll put okay, here, we'll this, put photos of that on the Patreon. This, oh, the, finally, the sword is about to be unsheathed. Yeah, about to. Be pulled from the stone here. All right, now I don't know, Ken. When you see this, whether you're going to how you're going to feel about it. Oh, 
It is in a red sheath. So I think what what we have here is the 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 hilt only. The owner of the sword had Oh no, it is a sheath. had associated this sword with their grandfather's less than savory politics and I think had the described the sword as something from as a as a relic of of some bad organization but looking at the sword I can tell you that it is just a sword from the Knights of Columbus oh no wait a minute <gasps> well, the Knights of Columbus are um... no I'm wrong oh wow oh this this was a I think this was a sword from the Knights of Columbus that got modified by an actually very bad a, a different kind of knight. Look at this crest. A, a different kind of fraternal knightly organization. I don't even know if you want to look at it, Ken. Well, let me see. The crest there on the hilt. Oh yeah, that's a clansman. Yeah, isn't it? It is. It's a clan sword. Well, he's holding a... He's holding a burning cross and riding on a A horse that horse. has that has the, you know, the horse has... What, what, are the, what, are the, what do clan horses wear? The horses have clan robes, too. Yeah, the clan horse hood. The, the, yeah, because they have racist horses with the, with the cross on it, and then right. he's got the triangular hood. Does it say Knights of Columbus somewhere? No, no, I just, I have quite a few Knights of Columbus and Masonic swords. But that's just a fraternal organization. There, there's no overlap the, there. Well. So it, so it looks like, so it looks <laughs> like theirs, but it's. The Knights of Columbus are a Catholic fraternal organization. Still extant. The, the I mean. Ma- it, the Masons are an anti-Catholic. And, uh, well, and the clan's anti-Catholic too. Right. So, and they all get their swords at the same sword <laughs> warehouse. It's like Justin's, because <laughs> I've seen a dozen of these swords, and I guess what it is is they just put. It's like they going just to the, put a different crest. Yeah, it's on like them. going to the trophy store, and they're like, "Sir, do you want the knife's hood, the bowler, or the?" Uh, well, enjoy your cursed clan sword, John. Wow, that John. really is cursed. Holy cow! <laughs> Are you going to get in trouble for sending that through the mails? Well, no, because it said right on the box, cursed. That's all you have to do. The, po- the, yeah. the postal employee asks, uh, does this contain anything fragile, liquid, perishable, or cursed? <laughs> and if you put cursed on it, they're like, okay, keep it moving. Don't let it sit uh, here next to these dead chickens. You get what you get. Um, if you want to send us stuff, uh, be sure before you send us any clan stuff that you send us an email <laughs> in advance and say, BTW, I was either going to burn this in a fire but I didn't want to pollute the fire or send it to you. What should I do? I don't know how you dispose of a clan sword. Get, well, get oh, the Eagles to drop it into Mount doom. Oh, when they, when they wrote me, they said, you know, I, maybe I should give it to a local museum. And I was like, I guarantee a local museum does not want it. I guarantee there is no museum in America that wants your great grandfather's clan sword. It's hard to think what the Puget sound area museum is that would accept it. Well, it's hard to think what I was thinking when I was like, you can send it to me. I think I just wanted to see it. Well, now it, I have it. Well, it worked. Oh dear. Well, he spent $24. He spent $24 mailing you this, um, this, this, uh, cursed sword. Yeah. So how do you take a curse off of a clan sword? I'm going to have to, con- I'm going to have to consult some. How many racists do you have to here? kill with that sword? <laughs> <laughs> it's like an exorcism. Um, you can send us things, actual things, at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. We recommend that you go socialize 
on uh, our Futureling sites, although we can no longer endorse Facebook in any way, shape, or form, there is an active Futurelings uh, group there that's maybe one of the nicest places on the internet, full of smart people, and I would like to detach it from its from its host. You want to get it off Facebook and send it to the send it to Paraguay? I mean, nobody goes to independent websites anymore, but wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if Futurelings was at its own site? People are not going to remember a time when you had to go to the something something forums yeah, right. to, to discover a lovely community. Um, and you can give to the show in the form of monetary contributions at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Listeners, from our vantage point here in the distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived or if John just hastened it by uh, by opening a clan sword here in the bunker. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. If the worst comes soon, however, this very recording, like all our recordings, could be our final word to you. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus. Omnibus.